Welcome, uh, Marchin Vihare. Uh, uh, I only know a few things about you, but uh, I know you grew up in Poland, right? Yeah. And uh, and I saw you had, God, not just a master's, but you got a PhD. Um, yeah, I sort of have this, it's not quite PhD, it's this weird two-year post-master's doctorate from the Netherlands. Uh, so it's sort of like, I think the best part, because I can brag that I'm a doctor, um, but I didn't have to, you know, <laughs> work five years <laughs> on it. Uh, was that the full program or is it like a terminal, like, like master's sort of you get when you quit a PhD program here? Um, no, I actually did master's in, um, in Poland. So I, I studied computer science, uh, for full five years, um, and this was this sort of um, the, the the Netherlands thing was a two year HCI human computer interaction degree. Yeah, um, and it was a full extent. It was sort of how it was structured. It was really interesting. Like going to grad school, did like I have a master's in something I don't even use, but um, uh, I'm curious if your experience matches up with mine, where like you know you finish, you go to college and you feel smart, and then. You decide immediately more college is what what's on the docket for me. So, like, what what drove you to like go into a, a master's program and later that uh, that little PhD? Uh, yeah, it's sort of interestingly like it all connects together in, a, in sort of with a perspective of time. But every little bit and uh, every little step along the way was sort of just the natural one. So the funny thing is that I've always thought of my thought of myself as a programmer. Um, you know, I played with computers as early as I remember. Um, and But I played with all of the things like fonts or colors or, you know, making a nice checkbox on those kind of things. And I felt very bad about it. I felt like this is not what real programmers do. <laughs> and I literally went to study computer science to become a real programmer. Because I thought this is just a phase. This is like, you know, <laughs> trivial. And then only towards the end, I actually majored in cryptography of all things, networking wow. and cryptography. But uh, towards the end of that, and, and it was sort of natural that I would do that. It's, it's I think, given my family history and sort of my, my surroundings, you just go to, to get a master's. There's really no other way. Um, and But only towards the end of it, I realized um, that the thing that I've been doing is actually a thing. <laughs> um, uh, and it's called, well, it's called something different every five years, but then it was called <laughs> human computer interaction or UI design. And, and, and I just started really digging into this. I bought some books on the early Amazon, at least early for me, mm -hmm. um, you know, Jacob Nielsen and, and, um, Don Norman and, and, uh, all of those classics. And yeah. I was just blown away. I was like, this is what I want to do. And, and, and. Only and uh, but yeah, the, the answer was uh, sort of uh, eventually was more degrees or one more degree because there was nobody in Poland. There was like a handful of people in Poland that knew what HCI was back then. And I reached out to all of them. And one of them told me there's this program in the Netherlands that you could actually study um, HCI and 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 uh, and learn more. And, and I was just this is a no brainer. right? I'm just going to do that. And uh, there were no other options, and that eventually led me elsewhere. But uh, uh, but on, only sort of in hindsight, it seemed like oh, I 
could have figured that out long before <laughs> I did my computer science, although I don't regret it. It's actually been uh, really useful in my design work. Yeah, it kind of gave you, it sounds like it gave you like a, a great base to work on, but I would assume, yeah, so you're like making apps and things look nice and then you go into computer science and everything's about code and it's not, that's pretty funny it's not until the end when people go hey you know what it turns out ui is also important <laughs> just at the very end um because i think that's how programmers think about it we'll just build the back end and then we'll just do the front end polish at like you know the 11th hour we'll just we'll just polish it up at the end it'll be no bro yeah no I mean, I don't think there was actually any conversation about UI in, in five years of me studying computer science back wow. then. It was just something I, I did on the side. I, I very distinctly remember I had a networking project where I have to, you know, design a, a, a LAN network for a, comp, for a fictional company and, you know, come up with where the routers are, where the switches are, all of this kind of stuff. And I spent some time on this, but I also spent time on, like, designing the logo of the company, which was, by the way, called Citec Astronomy. And, and, and the, like, the, the, I imagine how the building would look. It was just, like, kind of hilarious how much time I spent on those things that I thought are not important. Uh, and, and eventually I just, like, figure out, no, this has a name and this exists. It's just, like, I, it wasn't there around me, so I just moved to where it was. And so, um, let me see, this is all, like, late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like there was there wasn't really like bodies of study yet for it. I mean, we did have Jacob Nielsen and people talking about it, but like I didn't even know what you were supposed to major in, like a design program, like or some other part of CS. Like most CS programs were just, you know, programming driven back then. It was weird. Like the web wasn't really, you know, in coursework, I think until the early 2000s it felt like. Um, yeah. Let me see. So so how do you end up so uh, you finished the PhD in uh, the Netherlands. How did you end up at Google in uh, the Bay Area uh, in 2005? It's, I feel sort of very lucky and, 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 and happy the way things turned out because basically I had half a year until the end of my program and I knew exactly where it's going to end. And I thought, okay, well, um, maybe I just think a little bit ahead and see, you know, what would be the places that would never hire me? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I have nothing to lose. I have half a year. So I, you know, made a portfolio. Uh, I wrote my resume. And the first company I applied to was Google, which was the sort of this mythical thing called America, which I only <laughs> knew from the movies. I'm not even kidding. Like, I've never yeah, yeah. been there. And I... Uh, but Google seemed really cool. They just did Google Maps, which was sort of like right. the, the exact in intersection of you know technology and design and UI that I wanted to do. Um, and, and, and I was like, why not? But I sort of accidentally did it in a kind of smart way, it turns out, because I did not apply to... I mean, I did apply to a regular UI team, and I haven't heard back from them. But I also applied to the intranet team hmm. um, as a UI designer. And... I, not because I just wanted to be a Trojan horse of some sort, but it just, I liked intranets. I worked on that in, in my sort of side gig uh, when I was in Poland and I was really interesting. I'm like, why not? That seems like a cool opportunity. And it turns out like a lot of UI people, like, it's not very exciting intranets, right? It's not something you can sort of show to other people. And I think maybe just the volume of candidates was low enough that <laughs> I, was, I was noticed. And, and so after a bunch of months of, of, of this sort of 
typical arduous Google process, I got in um, and it just turned out to be in America. I, there was no plan for me to, to move to San Francisco. It just sort of happened. And, and, and to be perfectly honest, I, the funny thing is like, I just like, I'll go wherever you are. And, and took me years to sort of realize, like, what does it actually mean to move countries and to move to a different culture and what sort of, you know, it's easy to see the things you get. <laughs> there's a lot of glamorous things working in tech in, in, and working at Google, but there's also like things you give, give away and you might not realize until way later uh, what are the sort of consequences of choosing to, to move away. And, and it's something I'm still figuring out, I guess. I imagine going to Google too would be a weird introduction into American culture because Google, <laughs> I think Google, Facebook, you know, maybe a couple other mega companies are. are um, I don't, we jokingly talk about how they sort of extend dorm life to adults. Like you know, there's services to cut yeah. your hair and do your teeth and wash your laundry and and there's free food everywhere. And that's not really what a normal job is like in America. <laughs> like it's a yeah. pretty weird experience. Yeah, and, 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 and you could also extend this to, you know, San Francisco, you know, it's not like average oh, America God, yeah. either. Yeah, um, true. So, yeah, so there was that part of sort of discovering. I, I eventually, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm super grateful for, you know, the work experience and the con like conversations with people and learning and, 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 you know, fighting with imposter syndrome I did at Google. Um, uh, 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 but eventually, after seven plus years, uh, that's largely why I wanted to leave, because I thought... Where I'm now, I'm calibrated for Google. I think I want to be calibrated for other things too. <laughs> um, uh, not that you know, there's anything wrong with working at Google. Uh, well, you can make some arguments with this, but it's a whole different conversation. But you know, uh, uh, I just wanted to try something different. It's interesting that you uh, you started on the internet team. I think. I would assume most people don't want to work on internet. I'm glad you liked them and had an interest. You were probably like their best candidate because you actually cared about internets. But, uh, you know, an internet, you're doing internal work. It's not, you know, you go to Google, you want to be on big splashy projects that are in public. How did you transition to like, I mean, you've done the greatest Google doodle of all time. I mean, that's really like, that's the only thing, you know, someone told me, somebody told me three things about you, like... <laughs> He's really into keyboards and old computers. Uh, he worked at Medium, and he's the guy that did the Pac-Man doodle. Um, <laughs> so I was like, holy shit, that was that guy? Like, um, my, my epitaph is uh, the, the Pac-Man yeah, guy, right, the underline right. guy, the, the keyboard guy. Three lines. It fits on granite. Um, so, yeah, tell yeah. me, like, how did you how'd you get to do cool stuff like the Google Doodle things? Is it just sort of like internal projects floated or proposals or someone come to you or um, do you have to pitch it? No, the funny, the funny thing is, it was just like physical adjacency. Like, um, I, the, the Google Doodle team uh, and the intranet team were co-locating the same floor in building uh, 41 at Google. Um, and, and I had above me, which will be of surprise to absolutely no one, this, this old school Atari memorabilia just hanging above me. Uh, because like Atari means a lot to me, it's sort of connected to to my childhood and my father and all of these things, and they also look kind of cool. And they, uh, you know, there's the Pac-Man, there's the centipede, centipede, like all of those sort of things that don't look very good on a screen, and that's why you have to have these elaborate illustrations on the, in the <laughs> materials in the box. <laughs> that is a good justification, like the Activision boxes were so beautiful they were works of art yeah. and the games were eh, 
you know, they're squares. Which is funny because today you would do the exact opposite, right? You have this right. like retro two pixels and people would be like, that's amazing. But back then you sort of had to cheat a little bit or like put this image of like, oh, okay, Pac-Man is this in my head. And, you know, it's like reading a book, right? You just like, you, there's, there's oh, a right. lot that's written and there's a lot that you bring from, from your own head. So, so anyways, I had those. And, and, and the, 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 one of the people um, on a team um, who eventually ended up leading the team, Ryan Germick, he, he, we just started talking about that. And, and you know, we, we just started talking about a lot of things. And, and um, he had this idea uh, of just making a doodle that's going to be like heavily interactive. And it was sort of a toss between Pac-Man and Super Mario, or Mario in general, because mm-hmm. those are the sort of the recognizable the sort of cultural milestones. And I, and I think Pac-Man just happened to be the first in line, sort of like happened to be like earlier in the calendar or something. <laughs> um, but like, I think he just asked me, like, I don't know, like he had this sort of insight that I could be the person to do it, which I didn't have, which is really funny. And he's like, do you want to do this thing? And I'm like, this sounds pretty cool. And like on the shuttle ride back, I just put together this very early prototype. And for me, still, like I, 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 I didn't think I know JavaScript enough, particularly to consider putting something on, you know, Google homepage, which is sort of a big <laughs> deal. So I'm like, yeah, this is just gonna be a demo. Somebody else is gonna do it. And eventually, I ended up doing it. Um, and uh, and sort of the way I approach many things is just I sort of took. A lot of time just thinking about the details of, of Pac-Man, mm-hmm. and Pac-Man was turns out like a really good game to just uh, immerse yourself in because there were a lot of details that many people take for granted, myself included. And and yeah, so we we made it, and I had no idea what's gonna happen, but it sort of blew up. Uh, <laughs> I still remember distinctively this like 9 a.m. on Friday, where. I kept refreshing Twitter, like early Twitter, just to see, you know, what people are talking about it. And at some point, I got a fail whale for a while. <laughs> and I, I'm like not 100% sure, but I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat sure that we actually broke Twitter to Pacman. Because <laughs> that was 2010. Everyone was talking about it. Yeah, I mean, like, um, no, 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 I'm not, not going to be, like, it wasn't hard to break Twitter then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I was just like, oh, my God, this really resonates with people and it really brings people back. And, and sort of that was, I think, only the moment during that day was just like, this, this has this sort of emotional resonance. And it also is the thing that, I don't know, like, I think people knew that you could do stuff in JavaScript, but there was somehow a thing that, um, like, illuminated many people to what's possible with, like, HTML and CSS and JavaScript, which which surprised me because there was actually nothing particularly groundbreaking in the way we built Pac-Man. Yeah, like, did they know you had done HTML5 stuff before or something? Because, it, yeah, it seemed like... It was surprising. Uh, well, I mean, yeah. I think the virality of it, that people had to tell everyone each other about it, because I'd used Google, I think, twice that day, and I saw <laughs> it, and I just, it didn't, I mean, I was just like, ooh, cool. Yeah, it's yeah. Pac-Man's anniversary, whatever. I didn't know it was playable, um, because, I don't know, it didn't scream to me, like, like interact with me. Uh, and so everyone had, I felt like everyone had to tell everyone, oh my God, no, it's the real whole game. Like, it's... <laughs> It's not yeah. just a, a video playing when you load it. It's playable. And then yeah. I had to, it's like, no way. Oh, my God. But, um, yeah, I thought it was a great, like, early, um, seems early, but maybe it wasn't so early, uh, HTML5 sort of demo of, like, this is what's possible without Flash. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's pretty good. It was, 
I do remember it had like all the you you got every detail right. Looking at your past projects, I can tell you diving into details is a <laughs> is a common theme. But uh, like you know, you got all the like how you go around a corner right, and you like send your commands yeah. a little bit early, and it turns the corners just so. Like oh man, it was very nicely done. Yeah, I mean that, that was sort of the the like I I you know full disclosure I didn't care about Pac-Man before I started. Like I was, I'm a little bit too young to, to have like been in the prime of Pac-Man, you know? <laughs> so I like Gauntlet and I like all of these late Atari games, which is just like incredible. And, and um, Pac-Man was just old, but like <laughs> once I started digging into it, it was just like, oh my God, they really put a lot of effort into this. I, there are actually details there um, that nobody's like ever talked about before, or at least not that I've seen, you know, and I've done some research. Um, it's just a lot uh, of effort just to like embed, you know, the personalities in the ghost and uh, reward the player for their mastery. And there's like little, little things. And, and um, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's why it resonated, right, with people. And that's why it became this kind of cultural classic. Or maybe we just liked out that we picked the the one that sort of, that was so such a rich tapestry of, of just, like, caring about this. And this is 1980, right? Yeah. Like, every other game in 1980 was some, like, stupid spaceship shooting <laughs> at stupid aliens. Like, there's nothing else to it, right? And here you have this this thing that's trying to tell a story and trying to sort of, like, you know, using, like, the most incredibly simple technology just to like do these things that nobody's done before uh, that's amazing yeah the the like the computer memory was so limited back then to try and build a story of how each ghost individually is going to act from level to level is like remarkable that they the, yeah. like uh, the game designers could even think about that with so little resources um so like how long were you at google till um it was until 2012 i think it was a it, yeah, uh, around seven years, and I actually like Google Doodles were never really my project. I, I, I was at on Intranet, and I worked on Search, uh, on Search UI, and then eventually I ended up at the Chrome team for a few years. And, uh, and Doodles were like, you know, they called like what was it, twenty percent project? It sort of ended <laughs> up being more like fifty, but <laughs> uh, towards the end. Uh, but how yeah, many other then, ones did you do? Oh. Um, or like, well, what's one we might remember? Um, well, I'm go. I wanna. I wanna mention the one that maybe not very many people remember. But there was the one for Stanisław Lem, who's uh, uh, a sci-fi writer. He was a sci-fi writer in Poland, and is one, one of my favorite writers. And and there was the doodle that um, we only launched in Europe, uh, but it, it it was something I was like the most incredibly proud of mm -hmm. because I sort of had this idea and I sort of project managed it a little bit and I worked with an illustrator um, and, and we turned it into this game that was like hopefully fun to play but also like very clearly was based on Lamb's Siberiad, the book and, uh -huh. and, and had all of this sort of Easter eggs and all of these stories and, and, and we, we like we this was probably like the most significant piece of feedback I've ever gotten on any of the doodle work. Uh, I got an email from his um, from his widow saying that like 
to many years, many people, filmmakers, artists try to like capture the essence of Lamb. And you know, so there was like Tarkovsky and Soderbergh among those people. Oh, and man. she said like she she felt like this is the first one she's seen that really like captures the essence of his writing. Okay. And I'm like, oh my. I, I think I cried, like, literally, because it was just, like, the most beautiful thing ever to me. Like, I mean, Pac-Man was great, and we did Jules Verne and a bunch of other ones that were really, you know, people really liked, and people got a lot of enjoyment for and, and learned something from. But, like, this was the one where I was just like, oh, my God, like, I, I, like, I did it. Right? Like, <laughs> I, 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 I made something that, that sort of made it, like, was significant to me and also to somebody else. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but... That's pretty amazing. But yeah. you had 20 years of experience of absorbing those books and stuff. Like, you're, I, I'd imagine a Hollywood director just, wherever the studio just plops it on their desk and goes, <laughs> make a movie, and you got, you know, learn everything you can in a week about this guy, and then to go make the movie, and it's not going to be... It's not going to have the resonance of your work if you've watched him your whole life. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So, and then you went right to Medium after that? No, I actually uh, spent a year at, at this um, uh, non-profit called Cold for America. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and it was sort of like a way to, um, I mean, personally, definitely recalibrate um, after Google. Um, but also there was this idea, you know, this idea of like, well, um, how can I give back? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and Cold for America has this like wonderful premise of, um, you know, you spend many years in tech um, and but there are city governments that like they they maybe don't know tech or maybe they've been exposed to like the, the all the wars in tech you know the, the yeah. really bad UIs really bad old computers and stuff like that the, the uh, really bad practices of you know how to write software and how to design and and well maybe you would spend 11 months as, as a um, as a fellow to help and, and and so I did that with with a bunch of other great fellows. Uh, and, and our project was we had two projects. One was uh, criminal justice in Louisville, in Kentucky, which oh, is cool. as far from uh, my sort of upbringing as possible. Uh, <laughs> and I have like zero experience in criminal justice or, 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 or any of, of that kind of stuff. And then the other one was sort of building a tool for people to express um, their ideas of how their street could could what their street could look like so we design a street which is sort of like a fascinating urban design challenge you know like get get was that michael mcgursky's thing the like street Uh, view thing where you build objects or something so i I think it's it's sort of adjacent in time and space because i mike was there when i was there Uh, our project was called street mix as this is sort of web-based like it's really fun you should you should try it out uh you, you just you know you just drag things around on a street and you can sort of play with this idea of like what if there's no car lane but a bike lane right or what if we put a tree here what are you know you can move the buildings (laughs) very easily at least so there's all of these constraints but you can also like it it puts this idea of you you can own your street you can bring this 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 ipad or a printout to to a like a meeting in a city hall and say like hey what if we did this right it sort of it it it, it, it tried to democratize uh, this uh, this sort of thing that was before just the domain of really specialists right so architects and stuff yeah, yeah. And that cost a hundred thousand dollars to make a plan like that i remembered um the bike portland guy like fell in love with it and used it for proposals and stuff it was like a a bike blog about you know a city that yeah. has lots of biking and then he's kind of an activist and he would go to council meetings and stuff so he would bring these things going look a protected bike lane yes it's another eight feet or whatever 
but if you you know we remove one lane of traffic or we make a middle lane instead of two on both sides one on each side with a middle lane you know we can make it all fit uh i do remember seeing those things pop up that's rad and then uh and then medium and then medium <laughs> and then uh, are you responsible for like the really cool you know way links and the drop caps and the underlines work and like, that um, was all you right so, some of those things i mean i i joined medium because there was already um, a, a solid foundation for uh, typography and typesetting and it really resonated with me but it was also like it, it, I, I think the one thing that um, uh, put it in contrast with doodles which w- was that you know with doodles we did something that was for other people to sort of play with you know maybe admire I don't want to make assumptions but you know that's sort of like it was a little showing off right like mm-hmm. not not for wrong reasons but it was sort of like i was making something uh with medium what really was exciting for me is like i i'm making a canvas for other people to to do some things other people admire so it's it's sort of building the this sort of scaffolding or or or, and 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 medium was like this really interesting place where you know uh, we wanted to make typographical choices and design choices that would help people um write and focus on writing but they would also sort of sometimes take away some of their freedoms, right, in styling or whatever. So there's also this really fascinating platform challenges. And and yeah, so I I, I really just stood on the shoulders of, of, of giants that came before me. But yeah, I, I, I sort of took some of those things and and added, you know, the the underlines, which was really about just uh, getting people excited about linking. You know? <laughs> uh, it's not just like how, you know, the line is thin and, and I found this like fun hack to do it with this weird CSS property. But, you know, it, it was just a very simple thing, which was like, if the lines were default, they would look ugly and people wouldn't want to link. And like, you don't want to live like that. Like, you don't want to create a web where you can link to things. So, you know, the same way like drop cups, we, we, the most time we spent on drop cups was hiding them. You know, not making it very obvious how to add them because then everybody would add drop cups all the time. And it was like, there's no fun, right? Yeah. But like, there was this nice moment of discovery. Maybe somebody just selected the beginning of the word and like, oh my God, drop cup. Or they just wanted a drop cup and just like went above and beyond to try to find it. So there was like a sort of interesting challenges. They were not just, you know, making typography look great, um, but sort of like, how do you enable it the right way? I feel like um, uh, still to this day, um, how uh, how a CMS treats its underlying, you know, its, its links <laughs> is like a mark of quality. Like I'll see it show up in some weird spot, like maybe an Airbnb's app or something, and you'd be like, "Oh shit! I see the G is like demarcated from the under." Like they, somebody actually cared <laughs> enough. I can only I, I would say four or five apps maybe of gone to the level of detail that you know medium has treated its text um huh and as, as a longtime user of medium i think you guys are striking i mean you just had to strike such a weird middle balance of like limiting the palette but giving people like an elevated yeah. platform of beautiful stuff but with very limited you know you didn't want to turn it into myspace right and be purple and yeah. blinking but like it's really hard to work within those constraints, but also there's so many hidden features in it. Like, you know, the first time I hit control, uh, command a and highlighted everything and it gave me a word count that just blew me away that there was this (laughs) like, Holy shit, there was word counts this whole time. I did not know. Um, but yeah, like, yeah, medium's a a interesting challenge to, to make something designy and nice, uh, for the maximum amount of people without 
overloading them with like mental fatigue of all the choices and all the <laughs> options. Uh, and I think it, I think it, I mean, it's, it's just a really hard line to, to ride. So, I mean, some people hate it because there's, oh, you know, yeah. how, how do I make this bold? How do I make a set, a third level header? There is no third header. All you get is two. <laughs> like that's it. Um, and like, oh, but yeah. on the other hand, it's like, everything looks at least this beautiful, which is like a big positive. No, yeah, we, we had all of this, like, there, there's so much, uh, and, you know, I, I, I started, uh, I, I had this sort of flywheel effect where I started writing on Medium because I was at Medium, and and then, you know, uh, and I started talking a lot about typography and typesetting and the choices we, we were making because, uh, partly because it's fun, but partly because I wanted to be held accountable, right? I wanted to be like, if I talk about underlines, uh, well, now if we screw it up, you're going to tell us we screwed it up. And it's sort of a nice side effect, right? It's like, oh, you said you're good at typography, but you did this really stupid thing. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, thanks for feedback. Can you just like make it better? So it's like an interesting way to learn. Um, but yeah, there, most of the sort of interesting challenges at Medium were those kind of conversations, which is like, do we have three levels of headlines? Do we enable centering? Do we enable a second level of bullet points, right? Like, what does it mean when we do that? Like, what do we think people are going to use it for? Uh, like, we, we unlaunched a bunch of things, which was really hard. And I got a lot of flack for it externally, too, when we took some of those things away. Um, and, you know, I'm not claiming we did everything right, uh, but it was sort of a big, important part of, of, of designing it. Is is the same way we had to choose fonts that were kind of boring, you know, in many ways, because like anything with personality would sort of alienate a bunch of people from writing on Medium. Um, and that's sort of not what we wanted. God, I remember early Medium had like uh, all this parallax stuff, like, you know, giant images and floating text. Yeah. And, and it was like trying to mimic Snowfall, you know, the famous New York Times piece. And yeah. and, and it was, it was um, yeah, it was all gadgets and tricks. And like, and then every essay had them and it just got old instantly. Yeah, and it puts puts pressure on people to be like, oh, I have to write a think piece with a big cover. And that's a little like overwhelming, right? It doesn't really, uh, I mean, in some way it's good because you could say like it increases quality and it just, you know, you don't use medium for like trivial things. But in many other ways, it's just sort of really scary. And you end up with this generic picture you find on the first page of image search just because you're supposed to have a picture. Uh, And that's also no fun for anybody. Yeah. So, uh, and I remember, uh, the first time I visited medium and it's in, it was in that weird, you know, flat iron like building that looks like the one from New York city. Uh, and then I, and then I saw you and then I saw your, like, I could not believe the, the, um, crazy long essay you wrote on everything about that building that's ever happened ever (laughs) going back 200 years. Uh, that was remarkable. It was remarkable to experience a space and then see your write up of it. And like everything I wondered, like, huh, why is it that shape? Huh? What was in that weird greenhouse (laughs) on the rooftop? Oh my God, he went there. Oh my God, he got in (laughs) like, Oh my God, he took photos from four different buildings. Like it was so complete and perfect and like just the best sort of rabbit hole. Um, you know, thing, I think it just reflected my views of, you know, things I get interested in. I go to that level. I mean, I don't even think I get to your level, but you know, I try to just over <laughs> anything worth doing is worth overdoing, yeah. you know? I, I mean, it's sort of, I think also this, like, I mean, I think the Finland building and Pac-Man have something in common, which is 
you know, there are some things that are just not very well thought out, right? That like, there's no point in finding details or history of them because there's nothing. Um, but like, there is this moment where you, where I started unpacking Pac-Man or I started looking into film and buildings. You, you start you finding things and you realize like, oh my God, like I have this sense there's so much more, right? You, you have this sense that the, like, that there's this this world that you just stumble upon this big world of, of things, of of details, of, of, of stories or whatever. And I think, uh, I don't know if I can describe how do you know you're there, but I think you can sense it. You can sense it's like, oh my God, it's really worth putting a lot of time and energy into this thing because it feels like it's the treasure trove and you're literally the first person doing it. Um, and I think that's sort of like something I want to figure out because it's, it's, it's among the, the most pleasurable things you can do is start digging in the right place uh, uh, because it sort of gives you back really whatever you want for it to give you. Right, we ended up driving in this pickup truck with my friend Sarah, who was uh, my sort of co-conspirator on this project. We ended up driving to Sacramento in this pickup truck on Friday before work, um, just to find this brochure of Finland building that <laughs> they advertised it in 1906, and it's just the most incredible thing ever. And wow. it was just hidden in the archives, and we scan it, and it's now an internet archive, and everybody can see it. And it's sort of fun to do those things. And to like, you know, put meaning back into the things that used to have meaning and now they're sort of forgotten. Yeah, I keep meaning to write about um, something I've noticed in Oregon up here. And I don't think anyone's ever written about it every time I do searches. So I know I think I'm on the right path. But yeah, I wonder if there's a way to a topic engine you could give it, like what you're thinking about. <laughs> it could do like a bunch of searches and look for chatter on Facebook or yeah. Twitter and go, nobody's talking about this. You know, you're probably, this is probably virgin territory. Um, yeah. Tell me about uh, Leaving Medium. And I guess currently you're working on a book about uh, what is it? Keyboards and typewriters and, uh, and yeah. so, so the it's history funny. of the keyboard. It's all of those things. It's it's funny. Funny enough, like it, it all ties into Medium because uh, Medium had conference rooms named after typewriter companies, and each each one of them had a typewriter in it um, oh, nice. of a given brand. And I was just like, oh, hey, those are kind of cool, you know, typewriters. Like I didn't really care that much before, but then I start looking at them again. It's the same thing, right? You look, I look at them. It's like, oh, why is this backspace on the wrong side, or what is this thing, whatever? And 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 I started sort of digging into that, and I gave an internal talk at Medium like mid 2014, and and people were like, this is really interesting. And I wrote about the Turkish typewriter a year later, um, and it was this sort of little building blocks, right? Of just like, oh, every, every time I do this. Um, People seem to be really interested. And every time I do this, I, it's like a fractal. I discover more things. <laughs> and, and, and eventually, like, I, there was this point where I, um, there was a Christmas break of uh, 2016, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had some time and I thought, I will write four articles, each one about a different key on a keyboard, on like a modern keyboard, and sort of try to tell its story. Huh. So sort of like the same thing as a fill and building, right? It's like sort of like go deep in the key. So I wrote those, and A, it was really fun. B, ended up being way longer than I thought. And C, I was just like, aha, I have like 10, 20 more stories like this. And then I did the calculation. I literally like plugged in the word count times 10 <laughs> times whatever. I'm like, okay, this is the length of a book. So yeah. I sort of like arrived at the book mathematically in a way. But also like I've always wanted to write a book. Like I've always had this um, 
you know, just deep appreciation for books. I have thousands of books in my living room and, and I could never think of what to write about. And then I had this sort of language reset, right? Where I was, I, I wrote in Polish and I felt incredibly comfortable in Polish. And then I moved to America and, you know, and I had to like build it up again. And, and so, but I was writing on medium about typography and, and I started feeling more comfortable with my English. And then there was this idea and so I just started digging into that again. And I started like, okay, what if it's a book? Like, and started doing a lot of research. And then eventually what happened, um, I, I initially thought like, I'm just going to like do it on the weekends and whatnot. Um, big mistake, like doesn't ever work, I think. Or if it works for somebody, I really, really like admire you because <laughs> the context switching was killing me. Um, but I had this, like I basically had a bunch of friends uh, who individually took some time off to do something related to art. Um, and up until not so long ago, I thought of this like as deeply irresponsible thing to do. I was just like, no, you have a job, you work at a job, you be an adult, don't do this thing, do this thing on the side. Um, and But then like more and more so, I just started thinking like, well, if I really want to write about keyboards, I really want to write this kind of a book, um, which is not the most obvious book for me to write, or I could write about typography or some or CSS or whatnot. But if I really want to do this, like I have to do this full time, and I and I was lucky enough that I have enough, you know, savings and 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 sort of comfort with my career that I could do that. But I still took like three months off of Medium, and then uh, and then I realized I need more than three months, and I really kind of don't want to come back uh, <laughs> uh, uh, because I'm like I just hit this 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 you know vein of of, and I was just like I have this momentum. I I really want to dig into this and. And so I quit after three months of a sabbatical and and I ended up just, you know, writing and writing and writing. And and it is about uh, it's about keyboards, but uh, and it's sort of more looking at keyboards as a thing that coexisted with us. So it's not a very technical book. It's not a very. Um, you know, just academic thing. I cannot really write academically, um, but it's sort of more like, here's this artifact that's been around with us for 150 years. And the most amazing thing is that if you took the guy who made it in 1867 and put it in front of the new MacBook, he would like know what it is, right? So so it, it, it didn't really change at all in many ways. It's still QWERTY in the same order, but of course it also drastically changed in many other ways, right? Like typewriters became computers and that's a whole different, like that's a whole story. And, 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 you know, you have electricity, then you have electronics. Then today, just keyboards are just made out of pixels, right? Like most common keyboard is the iPhone and Android one. It doesn't even <laughs> exist technically, but it's still QWERTY. So, so, so you have that art, but you also have all of these people that were typing on all these keyboards, right? Like from, from late 19th century, where, where you barely had an idea of an office to like most of 20th century where keyboards were incredibly gendered, at least in America, mm -hmm. where you, you wouldn't see a man unless they were like a creative type. You wouldn't see a man typed because it was sort of like not what men did, right? Yeah. Like men generated ideas and women were writing them down. Um, like there was a thing for many decades that nobody really knows about anymore. And then you sort of arrive at, you know, keyboards and computers and that, this, that it sort of reset. Um, but there's all sorts of stories of what the keyboards were used for and, 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 and also how sort of all of these keys on your keyboard today, they were sort of designed 
and the keyboard itself was sort of designed, but it also really wasn't. You know, there was no <laughs> one standard at some point. It sort of kept evolving in these really fascinating ways. And you have these leftover keys on your keyboard today that used to mean something, but they don't anymore. Or they, they were sort of reinvented, but the names stayed the same, right? Like, like why is shift called shift? Like, it's not shifting anything really anymore. Well, not now, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, and, 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 and backspace was literally a space that went back. It wasn't about deleting anything, right? But so you have all of these stories, and 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 I ended up um, just 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 pursuing all of these threads, and that ended up being a lot more than I expected. Uh, and I'm still sort of in the process of I, I finished the first draft, and I'm rewriting it now to to arrive at the second one, and I'm still figuring out the publishing part, which is really fascinating. But uh, I'm also working right now. I'm freelancing, so it's sort of um, I'm trying to find a way to balance those two things. So I, like, you laughed when I uh, proposed this uh, interview because <laughs> I was like, you're the first success story. I mean, you had this <laughs> hobby and it took over your life and you let it take it over. Uh, but obviously it's not yet a success because, you know, your work hasn't seen the light of day. Um, yeah. I was going to ask, like, what was the publishing like? Uh, I imagine you <laughs> have plenty of people uh, that would be willing to help you find a publisher or you probably already have an agent in publishing stuff being worked on. But, uh, yeah, this is, uh, man, I cannot wait to see what it, <laughs> what you end up doing. I know the publishing wheels move yeah. so slowly, so we're probably talking, like, 2019 yeah, at yeah. the minimum you know yeah. maybe 2020 yeah what's the length of the first draft in terms of word count um <laughs> so like the hundred thousand world uh range or oh matt um <laughs> it's over two? 300 000. oh my god uh, that's amazing it's like i think two-thirds of infinite jest <laughs> or a power broker or something um no it's it's actually something something that makes the publishing conversation slightly more difficult but it's also um you know the caveat i have no idea what i'm doing i approach this book in a very roundabout way which is most people I think in the publishing universe, they you know they come up with an agenda, they come up with a contract, they you know they have Outline. a signature somewhere, and they write, and they have a word count in mind immediately. Whereas I was like, it's funny because you say success, right? And I thought a lot about this, and to me, like this book is gonna come out, like I'm pretty sure uh, uh, sometime. Uh, but really, like for me, the success was me like enjoying the process, like me learning from it, me uh, like figuring out whether I could be a writer of, of something of, you know, like more heft than before, uh, whether I could go deep into like becoming his historian effectively, uh, yeah. whether I could learn how to interview people and all those kind of things. So so like I'm ahead, like the beauty and I feel incredibly grateful for it is that like if the book doesn't come out, it will. But if it doesn't come out, um, I'm still like I got so much out of this, right? Like connections with with great friends now, and this appreciation for this artifact, sort of like you know, not unlike Pac-Man and the Philan building, but way way more. Um, and uh, yeah, but it's sort of I I let I started writing and let the book sort of become itself, um, and it ended up being this really really uh, big thing. the The interesting part is that I don't know what it means, because. Um, there is a there could be a long book that's a boring book, right? It's a long book that just has a lot of flowery prose and doesn't uh, it doesn't need to be nearly as long. And I'm ready for somebody to tell me that. 
<laughs> but there's also a possibility that it's a long book and it's just a long book. It just goes deep into things and it's a subject matter that's really long and interesting. And and I, I'm, I'm sort of hoping this book, it, it's not a very technical book. It's not, it, there's a lot of it is about people and I really want it to be about people. A lot of it is sort of about emotion or, or meaning or design, all of these kind of things. And uh, But, you know, again, the keyboards were around for so long. It's a long story. So, so I'm trying to, uh, I'm ready to sort of, now, you know, show it maybe to editors and some other people to figure out, like, maybe it just needs to be a long book. And yeah. maybe it's not going to be a book for everybody, but it is going to be a really, really good book about this thing that goes really deep into into a subject. And uh, and or maybe it really needs to be cut down or, or split into bits and pieces, which I'm more comfortable now that I put some distance between, you know, the act of writing and where we are today. I imagine uh, writing a conclusion for something that like that would be hard to you know, make it one giant broad story because you're just going to go down so many yeah. rabbit holes. But it, maybe it doesn't need to. Um, in my experience doing a few tech, technical books, it was like, you know, contract is sold yeah. basically on your outline. And I remember working for a month or two months, sometimes three months on an outline with thousands of items on it. And then they approve it when they like it. And you basically just write a paragraph. You have so many bullet points in your outline that, you know, it's 15 pages long. You just write a paragraph for every bullet point and you're done with the book and you have 50,000 words or 100,000 words. And, you know, it's a technical book. It's done. It comes out, you know, nine months after you're done editing, which is really frustrating. But um, I would think, like, uh, whoever was producing or selling paul ford is doing like a history of hypertext i think right now yeah, history of a computer. like like that kind of publisher would probably react to to whatever you're doing um have you read uh uh the story of the keyboard have you read uh stephen um johnson's uh what was his last book wonderland um Stephen Johnson, who did uh, How We Got yeah, to Now. Yeah, no, I love Stephen Johnson. Uh, I don't know if I read these recent ones because, like, the funny thing is when you start writing a book, it's really hard to read books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I have it, but I don't think I've read that one. Uh, he has a whole section on um, uh, Wonderland. It's just, it's like the turns out of history. You know, it's like a bunch of eight or ten short stories. And one whole chapter is on keyboards. And his point is like, um, Gutenberg stuff, you know, arguably, um, Asia, Asia came up with printed type before Gutenberg in like the 1200s, but we, you know, let's just gloss over that. Uh, Gutenberg comes out around 1500 and we have books and we have, you know, lots and lots of books. Uh, and we had pianos like in the 1600s, 1700s, yeah. pian- pianos are everywhere. Nobody puts like, I mean, we, his, his book is talking about thousands of years of history throughout it. And then yeah. when he lays it out, you go, Holy shit! No one put letters and a piano together until eighteen, like six, like it's only one hundred and fifty years old. Like you'd think, if he he says it in the book. He sort of says, you know, think of the first time you know printed type was directed yeah. by a person tapping a keyboard. And if you ask anyone, I asked my wife because I thought in my head five hundred years. You know, maybe it was a hundred years after Gutenberg. Maybe it was fifty years after Gutenberg. Everyone yeah. I've ever asked says, I don't know, sixteen hundreds. I don't know, seventeen hundreds. No one says. You know, late 1800s is when typewriters became, you know, popular. <laughs> so, like, what the... And his point in the in that chapter is, what the hell is our problem? Why did no one put that together for, you know, 350 years? Like, like these two obvious concepts are just right next to each other. 
in everyone's daily life in Europe, and nobody thinks to to make one thing go to the other. And the other thing it reminds me of is um, I visited Dublin maybe a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. and it was our it was our new Slack office in Dublin, and uh, they hand me a wireless Apple keyboard looks exactly like mine, and I start typing on it, and everything is wrong. <laughs> and, and it was like. I mean, I'm look. I was looking. They're like, "Oh, we have some American ones in the back. I'll go get you one." Um, <laughs> and I put them side by side, and it was like maybe six or seven keys are different on a like you know Western European keyboard versus an American U.S. keyboard yeah. from Apple. And I could not believe how much it tripped me up. I, f- I first started for like an hour. I remapped a bunch of keys. Like I used like a like a deep level key remapper and I was, I was getting by and then, then they were like, Oh, Oh yeah. We like too many Americans keep visiting. So we have a couple keyboards you can borrow. <laughs> uh, and they have to keep them apart from everyone else's cause no one likes them. Uh, and I, yeah, I couldn't believe it. And like, I had to have someone in Dublin explain to me like, why are you guys so into like the back tick, like way more yeah. than we are. Or I can't remember. There's something near the return that like, I just never have ever used. And it was, it was so common. It was practically a space bar in Europe, but maybe it was the (laughs) comma because of decimals or something. It's like something was like, Oh man, it blew me away. And I was just like, God, like this is a two year old keyboard made by the same company. And how are these so different? And we're only separated by, you know, it's weird. I can imagine there's a billion uh, stories. I mean, yeah, it's it's. I, I wanted to go back to Steven Johnson because you actually blew my mind. Here's 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 the funny thing. I love Steven Johnson. I read all of his books starting from Interface Culture. He's actually sort of an inspiration for me. Yeah. And I've been working on this book, on my book, for you know this many years. And I have like literally 200 books next to me that are related for <laughs> to to keyboards. And I have Wonderland in the other room. I never, nobody ever told me, and I never realized there's a chapter in Stephen Johnson's book about keyboards. And, and where does Stephen Johnson publish these days? Like, he publishes on Medium. He's like one of your featured authors. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, so find, yeah, find the key. I think it's maybe something like From Gutenberg to Pianos oh or something is the title. And it's, and he also has, he has a podcast. I was on really oh quick God. on it where he did a podcast for every chapter in the book. So you could probably find the chapter that like he, Microsoft sponsored yeah, podcast for him. And you can might, he might do like 20 minutes on this in the podcast uh, and interview people. Yeah. <laughs> he, he blew my mind because I was just yeah. like, I just assumed... I never like looked in the history of typewriters. I just assume they've always been around for hundreds of years. And no, I think um, I think it's like I think keyboards at this point to me are infinite. Like <laughs> I'm I'm still learning something new every other day. And people like so many amazing people are just you know tweeting at me now because they know I'm into it. Uh, but it's just like every day or every other day, like there's something new, which is really scary because at some point it books needs to come out. Um, <laughs> It'll but, just be a wiki. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, I mean, at some point you want to finish it, right? I mean, that's like the part of the challenge, but yeah, but going back to the other thing you mentioned, like there, there's, I have a chapter about this already. I'm, I'm now at this point in the book where I can talk about, like I have a chapter and it's really annoying because nobody can read it. But, um, but the, yeah, no, like the, the the history of actually international keyboards is really largely like sort of a history of colonialization. Mm-hmm. Uh, like like most most of the international keyboards today um, go back all the way to a handful of American companies making typewriters for all of these countries. And mm. 
sometimes knowing very little about the language. You know, there, there's this just this kind of beautifully cocky interview with this guy at I think Remington in like very early uh, 20th century, saying like. I don't know Russian or German or whatever. Well, it's not that hard. I just put the keys. <laughs> and you're like, holy crap. And, and you know, and the, the main consideration is how easy it is to manufacture, right? So you're not yeah. going to like rearrange the letters in a way that's actually more pleasant or, or ergonomic or respectful of that language. Uh, you're just going to like slap it on the side where you can like remove some punctuation. Uh, and, and, it's, and, and all of those things, most of those things survive until today, which is, which is like you say that it's, they're they're different i say like they should be way more different yeah right? like, true like uh there are some examples like the turkish keyboard i wrote about which 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 also now is is is, is gone because computers you know western computers came and they also over overrode it with query uh, uh but uh it's it's it is this interesting story. Like there is a true line through the whole book or through the whole history of keyboards, which is QWERTY keeps winning over and over again. It's so weird because QWERTY is like based on the uh, the common occurrences in the English language, so the keys don't strike each other so often, right? Like the the yeah. most the most often hit keys are opposite. So when you're in German or whatever, how would you even know? Or Turkish or Oh man, that's fascinating. I have to now. I want to read. I don't think I've read your Turkish things. So I'm always thinking like, how do they do that drop C with the squiggle, and then sometimes the squiggles are above keys, and like, are they modifier keys? Like, how would you fit that yeah. in just fifty? buttons like 100 years ago yeah those are like interesting challenges and then you have you know turkish with a few more and then you have russian with a few more and then you have you end up at things like chinese and japanese and this yeah. is where the fun begins right this is, <laughs> this is where you can just like slap a few more keys on the side this is where you really have to think about the the uh, you know the the, type, the Chinese and Japanese typewriters are not at all like american or, or western or occidental typewriters uh but Again, sad or slash interesting story. Chinese and Japanese keyboards today are exactly like Western keyboards, right? Yeah. Because you could offload all of these things to now software. You know, you could write in in literally QWERTY, and then uh, and then the software would you know make it kanji or Hanzi or whatever. But like, um, so once again, QWERTY wins. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't believe how uh, the uh, I'm laughing at the arrogance of like a early 20th century American typewriter company because <laughs> it it just reminds me of like you know like a Chinese company today like uh, you know making something for someone on the other side of the world just like we just want to make it fast and cheap and like and do it well done but like you know <laughs> designing for that local market isn't really like our thing we're just making things as fast and cheap as possible and America was like the China of a hundred years ago. Um, <laughs> When did you do that story on Twitter? I love your uh, Twitter stories uh, when you go um, deep on something. The, when you visited that weird typewriter museum out of the blue, was that in Japan or something? That was in uh, Spain. Oh, Spain, um, that's right. Yeah. Th so, so th th Was that in the middle of the book writing or was it before? Were you doing research? Or I, I was just... doing research then and I wasn't even doing it full time. So it was sort of, I, I think it was, um, I think I made a decision at this point that I would do it full time and uh, you know, because that was in October of 2016, and I started doing it full time in January of 2017. But it was sort of like, I mean, I'm I'm gonna use this word very carefully. It was miraculous. <laughs> like it was sort <laughs> yeah. of like just I ended up at this. Um, so the story is that I was in 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 Spain and sort of going on a random road trip to 
some place absolutely not connected to keyboards in any way. Um, and then I stumbled uh, on, upon this museum that ended up being one of the biggest typewriter museums in the world, um, completely by accident. Um, and it was sort of dreamlike in a way. <laughs> you know, I, I literally have dreams like this, where, you know, here's a new book by Stanislaw Flem, And I'm like, oh, my God, I've never heard of this book. This is so amazing. And I wake up. And it's like, oh, man. And, and, and all of these sort of things. And, and here I am in this place that has hundreds of typewriters that I've never heard of. It was just on my way in this random little town in a far away from me country. Like, how often does it happen? And, and the funny thing, I, I, I sort of started tweeting about it. And I tweet about those things um, uh, once in a while. And, and usually they sort of, you know, they don't really go anywhere. And this one went places. <laughs> like, I got, like, so many reactions from people uh, uh, just maybe, I don't know, sharing my enthusiasm or my excitement or just, like, you know, like, like, this could happen. Like, I don't know how often it happened. Maybe that's like the, the, uh, the last time it happened for me, but like, it, I think there's something very, um, like exciting about this idea that like, it's still possible to do that in a, you know, hyper-connected over informationalized world. I don't know if that's a word, <laughs> uh, like, you know, you can still stumble upon something. Uh, and it just like, it, it was just incredible. Yeah. Perfectly captured wonder, uh, of, I mean, sometimes I visit New York City and I, and it was there 8 million people in Manhattan or something on any given day and I'll run into someone, I, you know, I know from the internet I haven't seen in three years hmm. and, and you're just like, what are the literal chances? Like I'm never in New York. I'm only here once every few years. How could I possibly, uh, there's so many times where I'm on, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I loved your photos and, and journey through that museum, but I also loved the like accidental stumbling on it. There's so many times where I'm traveling just something only happens that day and the chances are just crazy you know like i went to italy once and it was the once a day celebration of john it was john the baptist day i just happened to wake up in italy like right next to the actual thing <laughs> in florence and it wasn't planned at all and like it was this like wonderful parade and like the whole day was remarkable and unforgettable and it was just like dumb luck that i happened to be there on that one day of the year uh and it happens all the time. Um, so, uh, how can we wrap this up? Um, what's, what's on the, uh, agenda for getting this book to see the light? Uh, what's it going to take? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think just more writing and rewriting, um, throttling this desire to learn more and put more stuff in, I think is a big part. No, I'm, I'm really, um, um, it's going to take a while, but I'm really excited about it. I, I think I'm going to start showing it to more and more people, uh, try to figure out whether, you know, I, I, there's a publishing house or do I self-publish, which I could also get really excited about because I like typesetting. <laughs> and, and this book is sort of, you know, it's not a, it's definitely not a coffee table book, right? Like, it, it, like I, I have a, it's a book of words. And the pictures come later or photos come later. But I also want photos, right? I also want a certain visual. Like, I, I think there's so much you could do with, with sort of bringing little, little details of typography or, or, or a certain style. Uh, I could, be really, could get really excited about splitting it into two volumes and one being about typewriters and one being about computers. And the first volume is called Enter and the second volume is called Return, which is hilarious because it's the exact <laughs> opposite. Like, you know, there's a lot of stuff. So, so, so I'm going to shift my focus towards sort of like thinking about the publishing and the visual layer and where it's going to go. I'm also 
really excited about like building. This is like the fun part of tying it together of, of having computer science background is this like I'm gonna when I give uh, chapters to read to people um, uh, which I which you know I'm really excited about I, I will also be like special UIs for people to give me feedback which I think is like mm-hmm. really important to you know like asking for feedback and knowing how to process feedback is, is really hard and I, I'm excited to try some of those things that we never got to try at Medium which is actually like building deliberate uh, user interfaces to ask people the questions you want, right, about your writing. So there's going to be like that part um, and, you know, eventually typesetting and visuals, photos. Um, So, yeah, I think it's just a lot more work. (laughs) (laughs) I probably still underestimate how much work it is. Um, But, you know, if there's one thing I learned through this book, and this is like incredibly personal for me and, and incredibly useful, which is this book taught me to just like, take one step at a time and don't worry too much about, you know, what's going to happen. I, I had this conversation with Craig Maud uh, some years ago about book writing. And he's like, you're not going to tweet about it before you're done, right? That's bad luck or something. He said something like this. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm going to do the exact opposite, even though it's really scary because like I can still fail, right? And it's like you said a few minutes ago, like I came to wait to read your book. And I'm like, this is a really scary thing to hear from me <laughs> because I feel like with every tweet or every newsletter, I'm like raising expectations. There's going to be something amazing. And I don't know if it's going to be, to be honest. Um, but so, yeah, so, but it's it's fun to write about it, and that's sort of a lot that I, I'm getting out of it is is this connection to people who who t- t- tell me all these stories about keyboards, including telling me that Steven Johnson wrote about <laughs> them, and and sending me all of these little stories and facts and whatever. Um, so I'm gonna try to balance that, you know, just like talking about it and actually working on it, and and making sure there's always like forward movement. Um, and yeah, the idea is it's gonna come out sometime in 2019. I think it's a realistic date from what other people told me. But there's still a lot ahead. Um, and I hopefully, you know, I'm also documenting a lot of this. And I'm sort of hoping that, like, you know, one thing I learned is that everybody writes their own way, right? Like, you can't, everybody writes their own way, in their, their own pace, for their own reasons. And, and all of these self-help books about, like, write this way, they're not particularly useful. <laughs> Unless you know they give, they might give you ideas, but you really have to figure it out. Um, so, but I'm also documenting like how I approach this whole process and project, with hopes that you know, like maybe somebody else will get something out of it, or if I scan an obscure typewriter book and put it on Internet Archive, you know, there might be one person 15 years from now that will read it, and it's also kind of nice to know that uh, outside of the artifact that I'm sort of really excited about. Uh, there's there's this sort of secondary artifacts and secondary connections that you can make through this process and um, and it's kind of cool. It sounds like um, you could use an agent to act like a project manager or find a publisher that like would take <laughs> enough care to like help rein it in because there's so many. I mean, there's so. (laughs) I thought I thought it was ninety percent complete, really, and now in my mind, I'm like, okay, there's like selection of format and size, and how many pages. There's like the paper types. There's the topography of the book itself. (laughs) You'll want to say like, here's what Turkish looks like. Here's what kanji looks like, and then you have to have a really flexible. Um, you know, printing house that can actually set all those up yeah. well, my, <laughs> and make them look good. And then it's like, how many typewriter, <laughs> how many, the photo rights would be nuts, except I guess anything before 1923 uh, is yeah. fine. But um, I mean, you could take your own photos of 
typewriters you encounter and then you're, yeah. you're okay but like the rights management is hard to get um the i mean you yeah. just need someone to say it's fine if you use my photo and there's boilerplate the publishers uh, yeah. are really good at that I, I have... on the other hand you have so much control and have such a beautiful um aesthetic that you'd kind of want to do it yourself but these things would cost probably a hundred dollars each if you ended up doing it your way yourself yeah so so those are the sort of interesting questions and, and things i need to figure out in the coming months you know because like i you know is there a market for a 320,000 word book in a traditional publishing sense uh you know i don't know uh might be but i think it's tiny it's a small chance right um <laughs> It would so, have to be 50 bucks or more, right? Like, yeah. just for the paper alone. But, you know, is that bad? Like, you know, like, yeah. so, so, like, again, like, it sort of boils down to, like, my internal idea of what I'm doing this for. And, again, super lucky and privileged that I can do that, right? That I can sort of, like, pick my idea of what success means. But also, I don't want to, like, be completely detached from reality, right? Like, if I, if I write, like, a, you know, incredibly heavy it's like it's a kind of the way i think about infinite jest and the power broker i love them but like there's so many people who just admire them but they will you know they're just overwhelmed by the idea of even reading them right so <laughs> there's that aspect too and i don't want to ignore it i don't want to create an artifact that i'll be proud of and nobody cares about so sort of managing that i think it's sort of like a second layer on top of all of the things you said so yeah there's a lot of work in still sort of soul searching and again i did it sort of out of order but you know, and sometimes it's frustrating that it's just so many questions and so many options. Um, but I hope, you know, I'll figure it out. And, and again, so grateful for so many people who are just lending me their time and their ear and, and their experience um, and ideas to sort of help me out. Um, you know, that's been like an incredible part of, of writing this, which is, you know, I, I sort of just jokingly said you... I'm scared when you say I can't wait to read your book, but <laughs> so many people throughout the last months told me that, it, it, you know, like it's it's an amazing thing to hear too, right? Like you don't have you don't know if the book is gonna be good. You don't have to say that, like you you, you might you you know, but there is a sort of trust and and this support that is just incredible. It's been incredible. So hopefully, well, based on to- your past. Based on your past performance, on everything you've written about, it's going to be exhaustive and and filled with details and like lots of epiphanies. And it's going to be good. Like, I think people are people are looking forward to it because they've seen your previous work and like they're really looking forward to it. And it's just such an like keyboards. Like, it's such an amazing universe. Like, you have no idea how many things are there. How many great people how many great stories how many like weird connections and and throwbacks and and this this you know like like i learned that like you you can't no longer use the word first when you research history you can no longer <laughs> uh, use the word best like is qwerty bad and dvorak good yes but also no like everything's sort of shades of gray but once you sort of embrace all of those things and once you start connecting them and like that's where it gets even more interesting in just like answering like yeah qwerty sucks and dvorak <laughs> was mistreated like i mean it's a cute story and you see that over and over again but really it's not and and everything is sort of somewhere in between and i'm just really excited to to, to put it all out and even telling the story of how typewriters became computers i've never seen anybody do that and i think hmm. the way i'm doing it i hope at least that it's just like fascinating because it is like the most convoluted thing you can imagine and yet it sort of makes perfect sense when you like once you once you realize it 
it's finally we, it, it's been durable right we've made that change it for 100 years and we stuck with it <laughs> or whatever 60 70 years oh yeah it's gonna uh, be there forever <laughs> i mean we're completely you know completely away from the typewriter ribbon and the limitations but we just stuck with all those conventions and it works fine and also it's like a it's like a you know we've probably changed human civilization in drastic ways in the last 40 years and it's all because of our speed of communication has improved because we're all using a keyboard together like like this is our interface to changing society and changing humanity yeah. it's really remarkable and sort of um, a, yeah go on oh i was gonna just try and wrap it up yes, <laughs> for the sake um, of 300 2000 can we just do the, the equivalent of the book and just go on forever <laughs> welcome to my 200th hour of this podcast where we're talking about the, year the is comma. 1985 <laughs> so we go um, so uh thanks thanks for talking to me i can't i can't wait i hate to um uh, no it's, <laughs> put it's more okay. pressure on you but I, I i have a feeling it's going to work out in the next year or two and this will see the light of day um once you finalize it i mean the hardest part hardest part of the work is done like oh yeah the first draft is i mean getting a first draft done is the hardest thing in the world now it's just editing and tweaking and getting all the details right and i think that's something where you excel as well so yeah. Uh, I can't wait to see this book in the next couple Thank of years. You. It's got to happen. Thanks for thanks for talking to me today, uh, and good luck with the with the project in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Fireside.fm, the uh, podcast host for this show, and uh, just a great, simple to use uh, app for podcasting. If you're into it, check it out at Fireside.fm. Thanks.